Hello, pod pals, and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. It's got to that time in the evening, about 5pm, where I really have to, like, motivate myself to continue with the day, not just make an early dinner and then get into bed. Um, So it's nice to be recording this intro for this week's guest, because I have to say she brought a lot of light to my day when we recorded the interview itself, and I'm excited to share it with you. Siobhan Harper-Ryan is a hair and makeup designer who started out as an apprentice in fashion design and millinery in London's Camden Lock before exploring the world of theatre in the 90s, where she found a place within London's Off West End and The Fringe. In 1999, Siobhan changed course and trained in makeup artistry and has since enjoyed a varied and colourful career, working on a range of TV and film projects. Recently, she worked on Sky Atlantic series I Hate Susie, as well as Joanna Hogg's films The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2, the latter for which she just earned a Biffa nomination. She also worked on Joanna's next film, The Eternal Daughter, and Peter Strickland's upcoming film, Flux Gourmet. This is my first time chatting to a makeup designer on Best Girl Grip, so as well as chatting about Siobhan's route into makeup artistry, we also go back to basics, discussing how she decides what makeup to use, what goes into creating on-screen looks, particularly for subtle period dramas like The Souvenir, and how she establishes a rapport with the actors. We also talk about neurodivergence in the film industry, building confidence, and taking time for yourself on the hubbub of a film set. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Make sure to catch The Souvenir Part 2 when it's released in cinemas on the 21st of January next year. This is episode 96 of Best Girl Grip. So I'd like to start off with asking you where you went to university, if you did, and what you studied there. I didn't go to university. I left school even before taking any exams. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I took a, a, an apprenticeship, but that was that was a long time before before I went into makeup. What was the apprenticeship in? In in uh, fashion design. Okay. So, so was that uh, sort of where your interests lay at the time? Uh, yeah, at, at the time, everything creative, and I was having a tough time at school. I uh, my mum knew a young designer who was uh, Madeline Williams, who, who was setting up a business in Camden Lock in the mid eighties, and asked if I if she could take me on. <laughs> And she did. And it was wonderful. So yeah, it was it was just an eye opener. And to be surrounded by creative people in Camden Lock, who allowed me to be who I wanted to be and dress how I wanted to dress, expressing myself Mm. and seeing all these people around me expressing themselves. And were you making clothes or designing them? Like what? What? Yes. Was it yeah, well, I was. I, I. I was learning about pattern cutting. I was learning about fabric research, and she was sending me out here, there, and everywhere, and and you know, sewing in the workshop, and also selling in in the shop at the weekends. And and so then, how did that gradually mutate into an interest in hair and makeup? I mean, it's not too far it's from not kind of fashion, far. but no, it's, it's not too still far. Quite a specific thing. No, but then, uh, then in. 87, I, I went to London College of Fashion to study millinery. And um, and then I, I took what I learned there. I went back to Camden and, and subletted from Madeline and had a store in Camden selling my own hats. And, and, and I did that for quite a few years. And then I started making hats for a theatre company, um, a fringe theatre company, and then started doing some of the costumes within the, the theatre company. Yes, yeah, so I was working within very small theatre companies that devised pieces as well as translated work. That was wonderful. That was really wonderful. Uh, so working under designer Jessica Worrell, and, uh, uh, and she was a wonderful inspiration. 
And then it was it wasn't until I was sort of late twenties, I suppose, and I had been doing bits and pieces because at school I was always dyeing people's hair or <laughs> <laughs> you did you the new romantic thing, you know, and, and <laughs> so I was doing lots of dyeing hair, putting makeup on boys, just all of that. So I had that sort of can do sort of attitude, and I, I, I ended up doing bits and pieces within the theatre companies, and then. So I retrained then in, in my late 20s at the Delamar Academy of Makeup. And did that feel like a particularly scary or, you know, like a big leap sort of retraining? No, no. no. <laughs> to retrain, I suppose it did, because suddenly suddenly I wasn't working hmm. and I had to be somewhere every morning and it wasn't theatre. And it, But my, my, my life has always been a bit kind of all over the place. So <laughs> this is just another step another thing and I I got into I wanted to to learn more about prosthetics and that was where I wanted to to be uh, I thought until I started studying makeup that I realized I quite enjoy all aspects of it and as the characterization was the thing that really gripped me Mm, that's really interesting that I think that there are specific levels of kind of makeup artistry mm. um, so I'm, I'm wondering what it is particularly about characterization and as you say you were kind of led away from prosthetics into the kind of broader makeup artistry yeah. what appealed to you about that beyond characterization or, or what specifically about characterization the detail of character and why people do things method uh, so I always w- used to watch things and wonder why that actor has that clip in at that time of day? Why they do? Why why, mm. why that character's wearing this? So I love that. I love I love that the idea of thinking: What have they done that morning? How stressed were they that morning? Why haven't they got so much on there? Makeup wise, and that they had on yesterday. What's different? And you know, and maybe it was a, that phone call that they they took. Something like that. Yes. Mm. All, all all the little details. After having retrained, did you find that the work came quite quickly, like because you had a bit of a background or did, were you like starting from scratch, really? Yes. Sometimes wish I did go straight in, be a trainee and a junior and mm-hmm. all of that. But I suppose I did all of that with my fashion design. It was that my, was my first film job was as a designer. Wow. OK. And I didn't quite know what I was doing. I didn't have a set bag and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really know about checks and I was fumbling around in the dark, but I knew what I was doing with the actor's face and the character. So it was just all learning those bits. And I had really patient actors who said, oh, when the camera's doing this way, do that, you know, that's, it's not on me. So you only need to check. That's <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's helping me out that way. And it's really unorthodox way to start. And, and, I uh, back and forth in my confidence, but but I got there, and, and you know, within what was it about seven months or so, I was designing a thirteen-episode comedy spanning four hundred years for BBC Choice. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of years. <laughs> Rick Mail as uh, as a sort of Margaret Rutherford character narrating throughout, and and it was fun and games. That was great. And I'd love to do that show again with what I know now. But uh, still, it was, it was good fun. And from there, that was the start of all the comedy sketch shows, really. So mm. I cut my teeth comedy sketch shows. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up kind of period 
makeup I think as well and we will talk about that more particularly in relation to some projects that you've been working on recently but you brought up a set bag which is one of my questions which yeah. is that you have to kind of come prepared with all the equipment and again like that wasn't something that you knew but how how do you know like what to bring is that a conversation that you're having kind of early on or you just sort of have base makeup and you add onto it depending on the project you know what does your set yes, look yeah, like? yeah you you I have a I have a basic stock that it's you t- turn it round you know especially uh the COVID we had to throw so much out yes we so we have our kit and our kit contains all the regular items but then you get your budget and you buy in specifics and then also specifics for characters as well and at what stage are you coming on board a project and you know getting that sense of the budget and getting that sense of what the characters might look like i'll probably start my contract will start uh, you know a month maybe you know between six six weeks and two weeks currently for the, the kind of work i do and what are those initial conversations with a director you know looking like or sounding like you know like how are you deciding what hair and makeup looks are going to work for each particular character and is that only happening when the actor is on board as well so that you know you know what their face shape is going to be like etc i will read the script if it's a series usually read episode one and two and then i will put together mood boards you know this can be without knowing who's playing the part yeah so just getting an essence of the character i'll know their age and their background and and then i might get a little brief as well as what i read in the script so i try to put something together then they look at that and then they tell me their ideas and then you know then i get told that the act the the, the the actor and then i'll go and do my mood boards again uh, and take on board the chats i've had with the director you know maybe i was going off on a complete tangent and totally wrong then the director he or she will guide me back to, to the direction that i need to be going in mm. or maybe i've opened up something that's that's new that they haven't seen so you know it can go it can go either way and given that you're working so in tandem with actors, I, I mean, I once had a conversation with a makeup artist who sort of pointed out that I think they're often the last people that the actor speaks to before going and, you know, giving their performance, which seems obviously incredibly important. You're almost there helping them get into character um, when you're doing your makeup. Hmm. So how are you establishing that rapport with them, you know, putting them at ease and, and making sure that you have a good um, working relationship? I, I like to be quite straight. Do you want me to to just talk to you? Do you like to just sit there and read your script, silence, a feed off them, really, whatever they they want? Mm. And I think the more direct you are, the easier it is for them because they don't want to, you know, they love that, I think, because it gives them a chance to, to say exactly how they like it to play out in that hour or however long in the chair that they have. During the test makeup, the fittings, that's that's a fun time because that's when they tell me what they what they like mm. and and you know we're trying different things out and and I talk them through all the thing, things that I think about their character and there's obviously they've been living with this the idea of their character for a few months and then we can put that together and it feels like a lo- wonderful collaboration and given that makeup is such an individual thing I mean I know that if I'm wearing something that doesn't sit right on my face you notice it and it can be quite distracting so how are you kind of making sure that someone is is comfortable and just asking them they usually are used to wearing makeup because they've you know even if they're they're fresh they're straight out of drama college they're still used to wearing makeup and more often than not they're happy to be completely different to what they are normally 
And if they are having to wear things like you know, false nails that they don't normally wear, I, I like them to get used to that beforehand and also stress that they don't have to, you know, we're not going to force them. If they're uncomfortable, we'll go shorter, no matter what has been said between the producers and directors. If they're struggling with these long nails and they can't do their business on set, and they can't pick up things like their script, mm-hmm. then that's no good. It's no good. And it's the same with false eyelashes. If they're uncomfortable with those, you know, we'll try them out and we'll get lighter ones. It's communication, isn't it? Just keep communicating and being really honest. (laughs) And I'm wondering how the budget, you know, affects your job and, you know, what you're able to create. Do you sometimes have to pull back from your initial ideas because of budget constraints? (laughs) Often. Um, Yeah, you start high and then see where you end up. I think my years in fringe theatre and off West End theatre has helped me immensely, you know, to make a small amount of money look enormous, but still, you know, a goodly amount to play with. But if you haven't got it, then yeah, you have to trim things down in an ideal world, this, but we can still do this and the aesthetic is still there. It's just, we just have to work it out. And I know you're also an advocate for cruelty-free makeup. And I'm wondering if that's something that's quite prominent in the film industry or if, you know, that's a bit unusual. You know, how how difficult is it to adhere to that within the context of the film industry? A lot easier than it was. I'm yeah. sure, yeah. People are on board with it now and that's great. There's so many brands to choose from. It's There's so many actors only want it. They might really like a product without knowing that it's... Right. Yeah, but it's it's not cruelty free. And I, you know, I try to find alternatives and show them that there are, you know, really high end products. You know, mm. It doesn't mean bad quality. It doesn't mean that at all. That just popped up another question in my head, which is that do kind of brands, you know, if they know that you're a makeup artist or, you know, they're affiliated with a film in whatever way, do brands try and get you to use their products or is it very much just up to you your preferences what you like using and what the actor likes being used on them is that what decides what brands you're using it's a it's a combination there there are some brands that will it's a mutual support so they will send me some things for the the old instagram love you know but i will go for the brands that work best and then coming back to thinking about your role and how you're operating on set, I'm wondering, you know, once the makeup is set, once the actor goes off to do their scene, then how does your role transform? You know, you mentioned kind of touch-ups. Are you mm-hmm. kind of then lingering while the scene is happening to kind of be on hand? Like As well as a designer, I will go down to establish character. So I'll go down to set and watch the first setup, see how it all looks on camera and the director's happy with we've offered up that, that morning. And make sure my team are happy on set. Um, if I don't have any work back on the makeup truck, then I will stay. But if I do, then I know I have you know, a great team out there to look after the actors for the day and maintain the looks. And how do you go about finding a great team? You know, or you know, is that just instinct? Do you find people that you you like working with because obviously that's it's so important to kind of work with people that you trust and especially that atmosphere on set you know it's often said that you know people have fun with makeup um, artists because they they're a nice bunch so like how are you going about yeah finding those types of people I usually meet my team by them doing a day or so with me or coming on board or someone recommends or, you know, or this is usually organically, yeah, and then, you know, feel that there's a rapport and I like how they work and how they 
how I see them with the other actors. I'll try to try to entice them <laughs> to join me on projects. <laughs> Picking back up the kind of the thread of your trajectory, we sort of stopped when you entered the world of comedy sketches. So then how did you graduate towards features? My first job was a feature. I wasn't really pigeonholed, I guess. I was I was doing quite a few independent features and then doing, you know, a Channel 4 sketch show. Or, or, you know, so I was flying all over the place. Doing projects that it, it excited me. If the, the makeup work excited me, all the script really excited me. What does excite you about a script? You know, what gets you fizzing and thinking about ideas? If it's, if I see strong, strong female characters, love that. So less of the woman in peril, just something, something, a slower pace, something that's very character driven, dialogue driven. Well, I mean, that we, that brings us on to the souvenir and the souvenir part two, because that feels like it ticks all of those boxes. Um, and you've, you've worked on both of those films. And I mean, they're just, they're gorgeous. Like every element of the visuals, the makeup included is just, yeah, so on point. And I'm wondering, you know, what that experience was like, you know, working with Joanna, working on those films. Can you talk a little bit about your memories of those projects? Absolutely everything. It was wonderful. I first got the call about the souvenir, the, the part one, and I was in the middle of moving house with a young child at primary school. So it's just the two of us moving. Mm-hmm. And I would stopped work and I'm not taking on any projects while I do this. And then typical. <laughs> then are you available? Yes, I am. <laughs> Yes, I am. I will make myself available. Joanna Hogg, oh my gosh. Yeah, such a fan. Just being involved in that that process and, and seeing she directs the, the story is, is shot in order like it was a play. And it's every, everything is thought about, the details. You, know? you take a step back and she, you know Joanna's thought so hard, you know, and she's thought so much about each of the characters. And you know, she likes to keep things very, that realistic touch you know, would that happen? And if, if it didn't, why are we doing it? You know, and, and if someone has a spot, they have a spot. That's, you know, that's, it's fine. You know, and the sh- shooting in in order is great. You just get a sense of the characters. You, you can go, go with them and you can, it evolves as you go along. Yeah. And you, mm. you, you can make, you can make decisions as you go along. You, you're not governed by what you shot through two weeks ago. And I mean, that level of detail, it, it does come through. And particularly, I'm wondering with the hair and makeup, because it's it's such a specific, you know, class milieu, such a specific era, but it's also quite subtle. You know, it's yeah. particularly in part two, it's the 80s, but it's not garish 80s. Oh. So I'm wondering, you know, how you were going about tailoring the hair and makeup looks to sort of reflect that specificity and to reflect Joanna's vision for the film. It's my time, obviously, that, that era. <laughs> and I've always, I've always had this issue with seeing 80s depicted as a like it's a theme park yeah? <laughs> culture club or you know Whitney Houston videos so I, I love that it reined in you know sort of it's just gentle and, and it's just elements of a time I, as well as going from memory because sh- I should never sometimes you know I think that's the worst thing because it's not it's not fresh so I, was, I do did a lot of research as well, referred to my all my old The Face mags, which I still have from that period. So uh, referring to those old photo albums, I love people's photo albums, just normal photo albums. And then I'm wondering, you know, are you in dialogue with the costume designer or the production designer? You know, who are you collaborating with to make sure kind of the, the look is seamless? 
Uh, and how lucky am I to work with Grace now, her yes. costume designer. So what a treat that was. So, yeah, very much collaboration. And it's, that, that's, it's, it's wonderful because uh, she shows me her ideas and, and, she, and she's, she's very, very giving and very supportive. And it's easy to come up with things that work well with her because she's open Considering that we, we spoke about characterization, a big part of um, Souvenir Part 2 is kind of Julie's maturation and, you know, becoming older and more confident in herself. And I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about how you used hair and makeup to reflect that. I think you, you can see that she's just trying new things, but she's still... As, as Joanna's always said, she's not one to wear makeup. I mean, she did for her graduation and she did in the first the first film for her birthday. And so that that sort of stays throughout. But she's trying, she's certainly trying new looks in terms of her her costume. Uh, and she, she grew her hair as well. So <laughs> and that was great fun. She came to us with long hair. So we need she got long hair for the second part of the film, yeah. the second part of part two. So I had a half wig made to emulate her hair in the first film because we pick up two weeks after. And it's so funny, some people on set when they first seen her with her hair down, oh, so was that a wig? Was the first wig? Is this the wig? Is this one? I was like, that's great, isn't it? Uh, it? It did look great. Is that the mark of success for you? Where it's almost like people don't notice, you know, like it just becomes part of the scenery and becomes absolutely. part of the character. You know, they're not drawn out of it by thinking, "Oh, that doesn't look right." Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, when you've got someone like Tilda Swinton, you know, that's a wig she's wearing. You just want people to. You don't want people to notice too much. And it's something like in the pop videos bit, yes, you know, you've got these wonderful, you know, glamorous, colourful characters there on the podium. But generally, no, you know, it shouldn't be a distraction and it shouldn't be the thing that you're focused on. It's funny because in a way, like makeup to me anyway, it feels like the opposite in real life. Mm. You know, like you you wear it in a way to kind of be seen. Whereas, yeah, yeah on a film set, it's, it has to be a part of, a, I guess, a, a wider tapestry. Yes, Yes. Mm. Yeah. But then, I mean, on the opposite end of the spectrum with I Hate Susie, the kind of the makeup looks were very garish and they were very sometimes in your face and there to be noticed. Yes. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, how you ended up working on that project and, and what that experience was like. I think, I think it was Grace, actually. Grace now, who, who mentioned me along with some other makeup designers. And that was the, the opening opening of the door and that was such a fun project and, and yeah you're right there, there's, there's there's such a bold makeup there in the first episode on Billy rabbit in the headlights mm. on the monitor <laughs> as the truth unfolds around her <laughs> yeah so that that was a fun one to help create and what was like the process behind, because obviously each of the episodes, she sort of unravels more and it's, mm. it's very, the makeup felt very integral to her mental state. So, you know, were you having conversations with Billy and the writers about like, and, and Georgie Banks Davis, who directed it about, you know, what those looks would become? Can you kind of talk yep. through how you develop those makeup looks? Yeah. And it, it, it's great having Billy Piper, who was co-creator, being in the chair. So I've got the person I need to speak to right there. So love that. And also Lucy Preble is there every day. And that's so good to have the writer there every day. So we get, get a sense of, you know, if you're having any 
problems if you're not quite if the characters for me is going in and out of focus it's great to speak to the person who who, who writes them and 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 she's there and she's very giving and she's always got ideas and information to to pass on and again i put i put a mood board together for that and i did like the idea of the, the, the sort of mask like when the models from addicted to love the robert palmer video and it is it is very mask like and i as i said um before and I, I did liken it to it's like she's been painted for her execution you know it's, and, and and she doesn't look like how we normally see her and I think that was quite important yeah absolutely that's a very striking image I'm wondering what your favorite part of the job is when I'm not doing all the mood boards then I love doing all the mood boards and when you know it is wonderful just creating the, the character and then putting all those ideas onto the actor's face <laughs> that's that's the best bit and then seeing them on camera then I love it when it everything's been put together and you go and watch it on the big screen and you see how it all comes together that's great as well and they're all equally as enjoyable exciting and as important I don't think anyone outweighs the other and then conversely, is there something that you find particularly hard about the job? You know, what what for you is the most difficult aspect of it? Night shoots. <laughs> uh, being cold and now as I'm getting older, they're all the usual things. Is it quite a supportive culture, you know, like with, I guess, the makeup team or, you know, hair and makeup, costume and makeup? Like, do you kind of all band together in that regard or can it sometimes feel like quite a lonely job? Uh, no, there's, there's wonderful camaraderie. Most of the time, obviously, you know, we're all human and we don't all get on with everybody. And we're all, you know, we're all creative types and we have our idiosyncrasies and issues and, and we're, you know, and we're tired. And, you know, there's, there's so many factors, but we all do our best within that to support mm. each other. So speaking of support and care, I understand that you have Asperger's and that's something I'd actually love to talk about because, I mean, the film industry isn't typically that inclusive in terms of neurodiversity. It is getting better as it is with a lot of things, but I'm sure there's still a long way to go. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that experience and, you know, what what that's been like across your career. I think there's a lot of people undiagnosed out there. It's only recently I've been talking about it. I sometimes get a little bit nervous and apprehensive talking about it. Mm. I'd, you'd have to ask someone else, I think, because I only know I only know my own experience, and I have nothing. I have no other experience. So, but people, you know, I don't know if they're treating me any differently. I don't think they are. I, I think my attention to detail is appreciated. Um, <laughs> Is it something you're upfront about when you when you go into new jobs? Only new recently. People? Only, only recently. Can I yeah. ask why only recently? Wasn't really sure how to how to address it, mm. and if I needed to. Mm. But I found being more open about it is great. I don't know if I was embarrassed or if I thought people would not hire me because I might be difficult or it's stupid really isn't it so <laughs> but um there's been a lot more talk about it and there's certainly been a lot more discussion about women on the spectrum lately mm-hmm. which is great and that's only fairly recent isn't it i do feel that there isn't the stigma attached to it and people understand it a little bit more mm. you know? does it require that you have to work in a different way like how how does you, it manifest i'm trying i try to be as transparent as possible mm. 
And I, I really you know, sort of get offended and things like that. I, mean, I do, I struggle with change, mm-hmm. but I've, I've got to know that a call sheet sometimes changes now and I've, I've adapted and you and I can adapt, and I'm not. I I I I'm not as hung up uh, um, uh, making eye contact as I used to be. I used to be so worried, so I just stare, stare. So I like don't look, don't look away. Look away now. Look, look back. And, and I say I was trying to, you know, while someone's talking to me, and and then I wouldn't know what they were saying because I was. But, but now they know, and it's like, and I'm not shifty. I'm just, I just, you know. Just doing my thing. <laughs> you know, people don't seem to mind so much, or at all, or if they, or if they even notice. So some people say they don't notice, but I said, what would that? What would, what would they be noticing? You know, sometimes I need my, I need, I, I can't be on set for too long because I, I struggle. It's was this too much information, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. noise, and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm in the wrong place, and I'm starting. I think everyone feels that, but it's more intense for someone on the spectrum. Yeah. And then I'll go back to the truck, though, you know, and I, I can be half an hour, an hour on the truck, and there's always things to do on the truck. And so I'll be on the truck and, and collect myself and uh, make my order around my chaos. Does that answer it? It does. I suppose it, it comes back to just in, you know, on sets in general, allowing for moments of humanity. I think there's, you know, a film set can demand that you sort of have to act like a robot at times, you know, like be a bit, you know, automatic and just get on yeah. with your job. And it's kind of nice to hear that just a, a moment's rest or, as you say, like a moment to collect yourself is yeah. something that is, is allowed for and should should absolutely be allowed for. I can go back and there's always work to do. So I'm doing work. I'm not I'm not just sitting down, relaxing. I'm just being on my own mm. in the work. Of course. I'm wondering if there's something that's been the biggest learning curve of your career so far, what you consider that to be. Oh, gosh. Every single day. <laughs> I can't think of any one thing. So I think I, I learn all the time. No, that's if that's your answer, that's the right answer. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if there's any advice that you've been given that has stuck with you. I, th- I think that confidence that the principal of, of my college um, told me, it, when you're going out to do a job and you're the only one in your department because it's a small contained thing, and this, this can apply to any anyone really, just know that you know more about what you do than anybody else in that room. So they look to you for the knowledge. You know, don't think that you're just you're, you're fresh and you're novice and, and you know, they're not going to mock you because you still know more than them. Um, I know. So, you know, unless you've got a director who's just spent 30 years being a makeup designer. <laughs> Which is rare. I'm not sure that transition has been made, has it? And then finally, I'd love to know if there's a film by a woman director that you consider to be a bit of an undervalued gem or just something that you want to recommend today. Is this sycophantic? (laughs) (laughs) Nepotism. I think I'd be saying this regardless of having worked with her or or Joanna Hogg's films, her back catalogue of films, which are just incredible. And I, I, I think... You know, with each film she makes, she profile increases, I think. You know, it feels that way. Or maybe it's just because I'm working on them that I see them. You know. <laughs> it's hard to know, isn't it? Um, but the, 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 the pace of all her films is, is wonderful. And I think everybody should should see them. I'm very excited for people to see this even in part two and, and to see your work in it as well. Siobhan, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. 
thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, well, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. <laughs>